Welcome to Upward Dogology, where I retrain your brain and introduce you to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs over the age of six months. Hello, I'm Billy Groom, your host and successful dogologist for almost three decades. And what the hell is a dogologist? Well, technically I'm a behaviorist. I just find the term really uptight. I find it structured. It focuses on unwanted behavior. But technically I am, and for the reasons to satisfy the SEOs and the Google searches, and so that people know what I do, I've called myself a behaviorist for decades. I work one-on-one with clients and fosters. I deal a lot with aggression and anxiety in dogs. I integrate rescued dogs into homes. I deal with odd behaviors. I don't work with dogs under the age of six months. I'm not a standard puppy trainer, and I don't do agility, for example. So I am technically a behaviorist, but I like the word dogologist. It's kind of like the difference between a bartender and a mixologist. So mixologist combines elements creatively to achieve different outcomes. There's a lot of research, and the goals are different depending on the client or the customer. And that ability to research and understand different elements that all can be combined and to really understand one particular aspect, like that mixologist might be a pro at using rum which would be like me with cognitive behavioral therapy, but they know and understand different elements and can combine them. And the industries are actually very similar as well in the sense that you can have different terminology. It's non-regulated. So you can call a drink anything you want to call it, but what it's made of is exactly what it's made of. The knowledge on the products and the elements makes that person an expertise and how they creatively use it makes it their own. There's no rules. It's an unregulated industry, like the bartending industry. So a mixologist is an expert in a field that combines and uses creativity and uses elements and does research. And that is why I call myself a dogologist. In fact, at some point, what we do is inversely related. As that mixologist does their job to the best of their ability, people tend to lose logic. As I spread awareness of upward dogology, people tend to go from having that deer-in-the-headlight look to the light bulb going on. They gain logic. So my learning journey is unconventional at best, and it's the reason for my passion and the reason for my success. In the early 90s in British Columbia, Canada, I was hanging out doing not a lot of much of anything. I was working like a regular person and I found a dog on the beach. I named him Solo. I found a good home for him. At the time, I was taking a creative writing course and the professor gave the assignment that we had to write about something that was life-changing and I wrote about finding Solo which he promptly said he wasn't even going to bother marking it because he didn't feel that finding a dog on a beach was life-changing. Well, I'd argue with him on that now, but instead I just quit the course and decided to hop into a renovated bus with my boyfriend at the time who was from Texas, who ended up in Canada pretty much wandering. And we rode this bus with his two dogs, and I had a different dog at that time, 
down to Texas, which sounds a lot more romantic than it actually was. But on the way, we found lots of different dogs. Uh, one in particular was tied to a post at a gas station, took that dog, took all the dogs that, that we could, and learned a lot from those dogs. I mean, you're living in a bus with a bunch of dogs. You're, you're going to learn about dog behavior. We ended up in Texas and lived on his mom's property uh, with, she lived in a trailer in a really small town in Texas. And I happened to pop into the animal control there, which is something I just have never done again. I don't do. And, you know, it's the warning from the boyfriend, don't go in there, don't go in there. But of course I did. So, and I went and it was like just freaking disgusting. And there was this guy animal control officer just sitting there at his rickety little piece of crap desk and eating a sandwich. And there was this dog just little tiny thing right beside him on the floor, on the cold cement floor, just covered in ticks and really unhealthy, about to die. And I'm looking down and he's like, oh, you can just have that dog if you're just going to die anyway. So of course I took the dog and uh, she stayed with me for 13 years. And actually she, she became one of the, well, actually the only dog that I made a point of getting. And then I didn't rehome. So throughout my learning journey, if I intentionally got a dog, most of them were for the purpose of rehoming. Some weren't, but if they were, I never really ended up being a foster fail. I guess it's now termed. Uh, I didn't keep dogs. I easily rehomed them when I found the right home and I knew the dog and the home was the right home. But chance was different. Actually, we left Texas and we drove on our way to North Carolina and this, we were outside taking the dogs for a walk and we were just at the side of the road and this guy goes driving by in his Beamer or Mercedes and he pulls a Yui and he comes back and he pulls over and he's just all dressed to the nines. Here's a shitload of coin. And he said, that dog, and he's pointing to Chance and, and we had probably eight or nine dogs at that point. And he said, I, I really want that dog. My wife's dog just died and, and it looked just like that dog and she would just be so happy if I could have that dog. And it was at that moment, I was just looking at Chance and Chance was looking at me and I just, and trust me, my boyfriend was looking at me like we could really use this coin, honey. But anyway, so I did not give a chance to him and I guess that was a a turning point for me to realize, you know, what are we doing here? I've got all these other dogs that need homes and so off to North Carolina, we went and had 24 acres and lived in a tiny 250 square foot home. And I swear to God, that dog, one of the dogs, but actually the one from the gas station, Kitana, went out and found other dogs. Like she, she found them. She's like, hey guys, come on back here. I know this great place you can be. So ended up with an unintentional rescue in North Carolina. Of course, learned a lot from all those dogs as well. Dogs just wander onto your property and they're all together and you live in a small home, you're going to learn about dogs. So this property in North Carolina was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, people had more guns than teeth. So the dogs that were wandering onto the property uh, were not exactly um, home dogs or they not necessarily lived in a home. So rehoming them was a really good experience too, which I ended up rehoming many dozens of dogs there. And uh, my boyfriend ended up going back to Texas. I came up back up to Canada, to Toronto, and I brought a few of them with me. 
and I just restarted again in Toronto. And I'm embarrassed to say that I really, really wanted to work at the zoo. And so I applied and applied and applied and I got the job. And zoos are disgusting for the most part. I, I don't know. That's, that's my view on them. I'm not big on them. I didn't enjoy my experience there. And then they went on strike. So I needed a job and I met this guy in a wheelchair and he had this big, huge Roddy, about 130 pounds, great dog named Remy. And he needed somebody to walk his dog. And I still had a couple of the dogs from North Carolina, including Chance. So I was just walking these dogs in a park and, you know, somebody said to me, are, are these all your dogs or are you walking dogs? And I said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a dog walker. Oh, so I named my company Rough and Stuff. When I was little, my favorite show was HR Puff and Stuff. And for those listeners out there that know HR Puff and Stuff, it probably explains a lot. But at that time, there were no legal off-leash parks. So I was walking oh, 14, 15 dogs at a time, a couple times a day in parks that were considered at that point in the outskirts. They're not anymore. Now they're trendy parks and they are actually, one of them is a legal off-leash park now. And so you learn a lot about dogs when you're picking them up from people's homes. They all live in different homes. They're raised differently. All of these dogs were over the age of six months. And I had to work with them and learn about them. And a lot of their owners asked me to teach them how I was working with their dog and what I was doing. And I was starting to take in rescues as well. And at that point, dog daycare, I also had daycare and boarding out of my two-bedroom home in downtown Toronto. So again, you're learning a lot about dogs and city dogs and city life with dogs. And so I ended up selling that business. It became really trendy, actually. So it was pretty easy to sell. And I moved to a place outside Toronto called Dundas. And it's a, at that time, it was a fairly big town. I got to know a lot of the rescue organizations. I, I lived in a 400-square-foot home, and it was right in town. I had a shared driveway with a neighbor who didn't really like me very much. I was taking and rescued dogs all the time, and they lived right in the house with me. I've never had kennels or crates. Dogs could go in the crates if they wanted them, but I didn't rely on them. And I was working a lot, like I said, with the rescue organizations there, and I was taking in rescue dogs. I was starting to get a lot of media attention. I was in newspapers and had different stories written about me. And I was on radio and I was winning awards. Humane Society awarded me for my work that I, I took some dogs from them that were really aggressive, that they had a hard time homing. And there was one dog in particular in Dundas that uh, a man who was quite prominent and he was a big supporter of the SPCA in Hamilton and he was having a hard time getting this dog that uh, that he knew was in a backyard of a, a woman who was a drug addict and a, and a hooker. And the dog was tied up and being tormented by kids. And so he, he was just having a hard time, I guess, getting the SPCA to do anything. So he called the cops and I ended, someone knew of me who knew the cop. And so they called me to get the dog. And this led to a story that made the papers and that, yeah, the man who originally got this started uh, <clears throat> declined any further payments to the SPCA. And so I started to become quite well known. And I really wanted to focus on the rescue dogs and working with rescue dogs and also 
teaching what I knew to people because people were asking me to teach them what I knew. And I really didn't have it formulated. I really didn't understand why what I did was working and why it was working really well with dogs over six months and in particular rescued dogs. So I really wanted to focus on learning about that and learning to teach it to people. So I moved actually to the East Coast to Halifax and that proved to be a challenging and not the greatest move. The geography there with the water going through made it difficult, all the bridges to commute to people's homes to work with them. And the economy was challenging, but I continued to take in dogs and I also had my own dogs. I focused a lot on uh, working with aggressive dogs. I had a, an aggressive dog actually that I found in Toronto when I lived there. Uh, she was had two guys pinned up against a wall and uh, they were like, this dog's going to bite and it's crazy. And I just ended up putting her in my truck and I ended up keeping her. I figured she lived with somebody, but no. So I still had her and she ended up adopting her own little dog. She was a big dog. She ended up adopting her own little dog that came from a rescue in Dundas that they just couldn't home. And so I had her and I ended up just keeping her. So they they weren't really intentional keeps. They just didn't want to be rehomed. So I had a few dogs of my own and I was taking in dogs and my business did okay there. But what happened at that time was the emergence of the dominance and alpha and pack leader approach, as well as positive reinforcement training. So what I did for a living became more normal. It became an accepted profession. People understood it. So for that reason, that was really great. There became certifications and I looked into getting certified. I never got certified because all the certifications were on positive reinforcement training, which is not what I did. But because it became popular, I learned what it was, which helped me learn why what I was doing was different. And while I was out there, it was almost like a, a self-thesis where I just continued to work with dogs and, and study and research. And I wrote a book when I was on the East Coast, and it was a formal book on my actual techniques. So I created terminology, which I'm not big on terminology. I don't like rules. But in order to effectively teach something to other people, you need to have some sort of structure and format. So that's what I did out there. And I studied through teaching it to people as well. And I found that really helpful. And I realized in order to scientifically prove what I'm doing, I need to teach it to more people. So I moved to Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. And people are like, what the hell? Why did you move there? But actually was a really good move because the economy is really good in Regina at the time. This was around uh, 2000. Actually, this was just before uh, the Grey Cup in Regina. So it was a crazy time to move to Regina. And there was a lot going on. And it was a crazy time to start a business. But the business actually grew really quickly. It's an easy city to drive around. There's no waterways. There are train tracks. They get in the way. They're a pain in the ass sometimes. But for the most part, rush hour is actually one hour. And what happened was 
I was able to get a lot of clients really quickly. So I was working with hundreds of clients a year, and this started about seven or eight years ago. And I learned from people what they were learning because there were popular trainers in Regina before I rolled into that city. They were certified in positive reinforcement training. They had different ways of doing it. Some were clicker. Um, some used the e-collar. Some used different forms of terminology or how they applied it. But my almost all my clients, like literally 95% of them, had some form of a positive reinforcement trainer before they hired me. They were showing me videos, YouTube. And so I'm learning what they're learning and I'm learning where the block is. I'm learning why it's not working with these dogs that they have that are over six months of age. And this two-way communication, working one-on-one with people is amazing because it's not just about me preaching to them. This is what you have to do. It's talking about what's working, what isn't working. And I'm really honing my methodology and how I work with dogs and how to explain it to people. And that's super important. I'm also going down to Mexico, Costa Rica, working with street dogs, working with rescues down there. I'm also working with reserve dogs because a lot of the rescues in Regina got a lot of the reserve dogs. And I'm making these connections with these rescues and I'm working with their fosters. I'm also working with the the dogs from Spain, the Galgos, because there's a person in Regina that's really big on rescuing those. So I got a lot of experience with them. Same with the dogs from Korean Meat Market. I met a woman who runs a rescue that specializes in them. And a lot of my clients are veterinarians. I'm talking to psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers. I'm to scientifically prove My methodology, there's two aspects in a nutshell, just say this quickly, but one is to prove the, the, um, the part that it's, it's actually applied. So that was with these clients and fosters. And the other part is to prove that the cognitive side of the brain is actually there in the dog. You have to have that element. And so when I'm talking to vets, it's a yes. And, and people who specialize in animal science, yes, there is the ability for dogs at the age of six months to think cognitively. And so I had this seven-year run where I was just formulating what became Upward Dogology. And I wrote a book. And that book was not not a not a training manual, not the same one as I was writing on the East Coast. It it just talked about the dog world and how it how it just moved away from working logically with dogs and just became this world filled with gimmicks and gadgets and just preaching and rules and just talking about how upward dogology is different and why it's different. And my podcast, that's what I'm doing, spreading awareness. And hopefully changing, trying to change the way people perceive working with dogs. I also talked to a really interesting person connected with Dr. Bruce Fogel, who uh, is in the UK. He's president of Humane Society International. He's a veterinarian. He's written a number of books on positive reinforcement training. And he, he really liked the way I view working with dogs and like my, my methodology from what he could, could learn of it on an overall umbrella perspective. And his his really interesting point was that the dog training world, dog trainers in particular, are idiosyncratic. So it's really difficult to change their perception. So my book and the podcast, 
And I know I can change the perception because I've done it with hundreds of people, regular dog owners for decades at this point. And that is where my passion lies because dogs are dying. Dogs are being euthanized when positive training, positive reinforcement training is ineffective or it's limiting or often counterproductive. When people just say, wow, you know, I had this trainer and it didn't work. I got to put my dog down. And this really bothers me. And this is why I feel this need to now spread this awareness. So my learning journey has been unique and mostly because I learned from dogs, which sounds really cliche, but I learned from dogs. And then when I'm teaching from people, I'm learning from people. I'm not preaching. I'm just changing the mindset. I'm allowing people to process. And once they process, they start to think differently and learn and think of their dogs differently. And this is exactly how I work with dogs. I allow dogs to change their perception. And then that in turn changes their behavior. And that is the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's also why upward dogology is a dogology. It's not just one technique. And that's what makes it different. But that information, I'm going to save that for the next episode. Enjoy your learning journey. Thank you for your interest. If you enjoyed the information and find it interesting, please share the link. If you have questions, please contact me at billy at upwarddogology.com. Please follow me on Instagram and on Facebook, Upward Dogology. My book is available on Amazon and through most ebook retailers or through my publisher, Friesen Press. Profits from the sale of the book go to Dogs in Need. To learn more about my learning journey, you can check out my interview on The Entrepreneur Way with Neil Ball, episode 1595. Big thanks to the Jeff Murdoch Band of Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada for the music off their album, Outrun the Sunrise. For any of the links, you can refer to the show notes. Enjoy your learning journey. Mm -hmm.